0: He picks up fast whenever I call. Okay, today we're going to finish up Romans. And we are going to be in Romans chapter 16. And it's going to be a little different um, than typical. We're going to go through, not necessarily line by line, but I'm going to read it to you and bring some stuff out. Um, There's a long list of people in chapter 16. And so we're going to kind of go through it pretty quick and some very practical things and then kind of land the plane of Romans, essentially saying we as a church should be out doing the work of an evangelist. So, let's pray. dearly Father, thanks again for this day. Thank you for an amazing time so far in worship, that we can come and sing worship songs to you, that we can be part of worship together in the witnessing of a baptism of one of your children, that we can hear of a ministry um, through worship that spreads the word around the world and has a massive impact um, in pretty amazing ways because it's your word. So help us, Lord, as we open your word one more time, that we would continue to worship, that we would see that we should be in awe of you in song, in deed, and in word. And if that would tunnel into our hearts, we would be an unstoppable force of hope in this community and the world. We love you. Amen. So Romans chapter 16 is kind of a personal farewell from Paul. It is a section of thank yous, a section of, Hey, I know this person. You know that person? Like you could almost, in a maybe a current context, say, this is Paul saying, these people are all my friends on Facebook. <laughs> and like real friends, not like the weird fake friends that aren't really your friends. I've got a thousand friends. Well, they're not really your friends. You understand the concept, right? But these are his real friends. Now, this is interesting because what's happening is Paul is in the city of Corinth writing this. And so he has all that's happening in this crazy city of Corinth all around him. When you read the letters to the church in Corinth, First and Second Corinthians, it's the church gone wild. It's the church that says it has a faith, but how it is manifested in outward appearance is chaos. And so Paul is seeing this happen in front of him. And so he writes a letter to the church in Rome saying, kind of, don't be like Corinth. Like, you know this. That's why it's very systematic in theology. This is how it is. This is what's happening. This is how you believe. Grace, 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 and then use that grace to propel you to action. So then he has this long list of people. Now, this is, uh, he's never been to Rome. He's not been to the church in Rome. So this is Paul asserting himself, saying, I, I long to visit. I want to come see you on the way to Spain and greet all these people. He's essentially name dropping, but not in a bad way. He wants people to talk to them to vouch for his presence. So when he shows up, he's not going to have to do this long time of trying to prove himself. He can show up and get right to work. When we see all the other letters, he knows them, except the church in Colossus. And we see a very similar thing, where at the end, he's saying, greet this person, greet this person, greet this person. But all the other letters, he's been there. He's planted that church. He's been part of the church growth, but not the church in Rome. So when he shows up, He wants them to know who he is and what he's about. And so we see this long list. If you list them all out, this is kind of who you see in this list. Now I'm going to read through it, make some comments about them, and then butcher a whole lot of Greek and Hebrew names. So let's have some fun together. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centuria, that you may welcome her, in the lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well so a couple things phoebe is a female name if you know that or not so you have a woman of wealth who's also called a deacon she's a deacon in the church she's a servant the same greek word of servant it's the greek word for deacon So she is a deacon in the church. She's a servant, and she's a patron, which means she's a woman of wealth. She's a woman of means who has supported not only Paul, but others. So this is a woman kind of like um, Lydia in in the letter to the church in Philippi. She's a woman of wealth who is supporting ministries. She's supporting people, and not only that, but she's on the road. She's walking. She's at the church, we think, that she was at the church in um, Centuria, and she's actually come through and seen Paul in Corinth, and she's probably hand-delivering this letter to the church in Rome herself. So you have to see this high ideal of women and confidence in women from Paul. I know Paul gets this bad rap when you read through his letters. He gets this bad um, stigma of being anti-female, and he leads off with, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. She's a servant. She's a deacon. And by the way, I entrust her with this letter that's coming to you. So you can't, I mean, I just, when people kind of say that, well, Paul hated women. I go, well, yeah. it, I, I, found, I saw a tweet this week. It's, it's funny what people say about the Bible who've never read the Bible. That's just kind of funny. You just kind of have to laugh about it and go, well, if you read the Bible, we wouldn't have this disagreement. Okay, he then continues. Greet um, Prisha, which is a short for Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Now, we've heard of Priscilla and Aquila over and over again, but you have this couple who has supported Paul and they risked their necks for him. They were willing to die for Paul. And to the greatest level, where he says all of the Gentiles are thankful for them. Now, I think people are thankful for us in different areas. People are thankful for us and our lives in this church or thankful for. But I can honestly say, as cool as a guy as I am, all of the churches of the Gentiles are not thankful for me. They don't know me. They don't care about me. They have no clue who I am. So for Priscilla and Aquila to be known at the foundational levels of the growth of the church... For all of the Gentiles to know them, be thankful for them, that's huge. These are kind of like the rock star, Christian supporter, people in the church spreading the gospel. Like think Billy Graham, or maybe not quite like Billy Graham, but similar in that vein. Like a couple who just lives their lives for ministry, who are willing to die. They risk their necks for Paul. Greet also the church in their house. So think about that. They've now moved to Rome. The whole church, all Gentiles are thankful for them, and they're also leading a small group. How cool is that? Like, not only does the church know them, they serve in the church, but they open their home up to have church in their house. Pretty cool. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. So he's saying this this, we don't know all of these details for a fact. So some of this is conjecture, some of it's logic, some of it's kind of reason. If you look down at the bottom of your, um, the Bible, it says Greek or first fruit. So convert or first fruit to Christ in Asia. This could have been the first person that Paul ever shared the gospel with and came to Christ. So he probably would be a Galatian. So he would be a Greek In Asia, a Galatian, a Gentile. Because when Paul was knocked to his knees and blinded and the scales were removed, we know that he stayed in and around Galatia for three years, learning the scriptures all over again in light of Christ before he ever had a public ministry out in the open. So he's saying, "Um, I know this guy. Probably like it's the first guy I ever led to faith kind of thing. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Just Mary. We know nothing more about her. Greet Andraconus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. So we have two men who are prisoners with him, workers in the church, and they were believers before Paul was. And they are well known to the apostles. So he's saying, These guys, they hang out with Peter. Kind of name dropping a little bit. Greet Ampelitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my, my beloved Stachus, Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphania and Tryphosa. Now, we don't know a lot about these two women. We know those are female names, and we know that that's very similar. We know they're sisters. We, we can reason they're sisters because they're mentioned together, and it's kind of like the tradition of some families today where you name your kids all at the same initial. So you have, like, Luke, Larry, and Landon, and, and um, Laban, and whoever else, right? Or you have, we've got Susie, Sally, Samantha, like that kind of thing happening. So it's, we, it's, we can great gather that they're sisters, but then also the wording and the, the level of name in Greek they have, they're, they're names known as names of wealth. They, these aren't what we call commoner names. These are names of means. So you have two sisters who are probably wealthy, who have become great workers in the Lord. Now, that means that they've cast off material possessions. They've cast off any lifestyles of comfort, especially in the first century of the church. To become a Christian doesn't mean you make lots. I know in the 50s and 60s and a part of of church in this country was if you wanted to be a successful businessman in your town, you joined the biggest church in town because you're able to network and you're able to meet people and influence people. And well, I go to that church, right? And now we're seeing 50 years later the fruits of that. Or we have an entire nation filled with cultural Christians that go, well, I go to church. Well, do you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Well, I go to church. Do you serve faithfully in all these areas? Do you serve faithfully in your church? Do you contribute? Do you put some blood and sweat equity into the church? Well, I go to church. And that's we're seeing that today. We're seeing the fruits of that. We're seeing the fruits of that in politics. We're seeing the fruits of that in our nation. But these two would not have been like that. They wouldn't be cultural Christians. No one claimed Christ unless you're willing to die during this time. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. We know that that is kind of a, um, she's a Persian. It's a female name given to Persians. So someone from more like Iran, not necessarily Israel. Great Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Rufus um, is the son of Simon. Simon is the man who carried the cross of Christ. He's the man that was picked out of the crowd by the Roman soldiers and said, you carry it. He carries the cross member of the cross to, the, to Golgotha, where he is crucified. And then his son is Rufus. We know that Simon was part of the church in um, Antioch. And so he was part of the sending group who sent Paul out in his missionary journey. So for Rufus to be there, that's kind of like, that's a big deal. It's like, uh, yeah, my dad carried the cross. What'd your dad do? Uh, he came to church one day, and Paul talked to him, and he became a believer. Yeah, well, welcome to JV. My dad's varsity, Right? So you have this other person coming in, Rufus, and then his mom. So this would have been Simon's wife. We don't know if Simon's dead because Simon's not mentioned. He's probably passed. Or he might be out on a missionary journey himself. But for Rufus and mom to be in Rome, Simon isn't going. It wouldn't be good for Simon to keep serving in a church all the way across the Mediterranean unless he was out in the wilderness. So either Simon is out serving somewhere or he's passed. And so now Paul's saying, she was like, my own mother. She's a surrogate mother to me. Because So think about how deep the relationship would be with this group, with Rufus and his mom. Because Paul would be ostracized by his entire family. Pharisee among Pharisees. And for him to come to a faith in Christ, his family would have completely rejected him. So this is a deep relationship with this woman. He then continues. Greet, and I'm going to get all these wrong, Asencritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with him. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nerseus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with him. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. So you have this giant long list of people. Women, men, women of wealth, couples of wealth. Mary is a very common name, um, would not have been any kind of name of significance. You have Hermes, which is a slave name. Um, it's a Greek slave name. Um, it's very similar to when I was in Uganda a few months ago. Um, all of the Ugandan native names are, were tough for me to pronounce. I tried. But then uh, most Ugandans have a biblical name, too. So, like the two that I showed pictures of before, and the two, the two or three that I'm still in contact with, um, he, his name's Moses. Well, his name's not really Moses. Like, his, he came from a family of no faith, but he chose a biblical name, Go with us along with his Uganda name, so everyone would know who he was. Um, Cephas, the young man, he sees himself, he, which Cephas, which you know, he sees himself as a biblical character. He, like, they take biblical names, and so you do all these things. Well, that's the same thing that would have happened with slaves. You took the name of a Greek god, Hermes, and that's how he was known. But he himself was a slave. So you have all of these names, all of these people. And like Dan was talking about, you have a family table where people don't often eat dinner together anymore. And so then when you eat dinner together, then you have like all the family comes together and it becomes almost like a crazy family reunion a lot, right? And that's what communion is. When we come together on a Sunday morning and we take communion, it's it's not so much a reverent. I mean, it is reverent. Don't hear me say it's not reverent. It's a reverent time of a sacrament of of remembering the cross, following and obedience to Christ, but it's also like a crazy family reunion where you've got crazy Uncle Joe over here who is like, just stay away from him, especially after noon because he just gets crazy when his meds wear off. And then you've got like, you know, Aunt June over here that she just thinks that, you know, sewing clothes from drapes, like the sound of music is the cutest thing ever. And so she sews you a new shirt every year, and you smile and say thank you, and then you put it in the closet. And then you've got, like, you know, Bob back there who's just a family friend. He's not really part of the family. Everybody invites him anyway. Like, why do you bring him along? But he's there. And then think of all the walks of life that we have in this church. Think of how we can mirror some of this. People who've grown up in the faith and known Christ, like one of the first Christians in Asia is there. And then you have wealthy Phoebe, Who is a woman of great means? She's transporting this letter. She's trusted by Paul, but she's a woman of great means who just lavishly gives away her income so that others could be could come to Christ through missionaries. You have Priscilla and Aquila who say, "Hey, you can hide out in my basement. They might kill you. Yeah, we know, but it's important. The gospel is more important than our lives. What about our family inheritance?" Shouldn't we, as sisters, like continue on with our inheritance? No, nah, we're going to give that all away. We don't care. It's more important to be in this family. So think about how this church came together in Rome from all of its different walks of life. And think about how we come together as the church here. We all have different stories. Some of you grew up in the church. Some of you are like me and had nothing to do with Jesus till you are 17. Some of you have great education in biblical training. And some of you are just trying to figure out Like, what is the book of Numbers even for? Right? Some of you are on different areas of this journey of faith. Some of you are completely obedient. You see the scriptures as faithful and true. You believe in the inerrancy of scripture. And some of you are going, I don't know. I I don't think that God really meant that. We're all in this together, just like the church in Rome. But together, under the banner of Christ, they did amazing things. Think about how the culture was influenced in Rome. Think about how hundreds of years of persecution then led to the Roman Empire becoming a place of Christ, and then because of the oppression lifting, the cause of Christ, the name of Christ, was broadcast to the world. So when Paul says, greet each other with a holy kiss, he's saying that as a church, we should be affectionate for each other, Now, I know if we all started kissing each other, it would get weird real fast. That's not our cultural connotation. We actually think that kind of faded away in the church by the second and third century. They weren't giving sort of the holy kiss anymore. It became like, you know, just the standard old handshake and elbow bump and fist pound in the last five years, right? So for us, what would it be? I think it's the hug. I think for us as a church, to be perfectly honest, I was kind of creeped out and uncomfortable when I started going to church and all these dudes started hugging me and calling me brother. And I go, um, I've got a brother, and I don't hug him. So why would I hug you? And now, like, how often, I mean, some of you have gotten hugs from me. Some of you want hugs from me, and we can talk about that later. I will hug you, but it's weird to desire that. Um, but think about how times you get close with people, like you encounter brothers and sisters, and you see each other. Like we're going to go see family and friends in the next couple of weeks, and it's gonna, we're going to see each other. It's going to start with a hug. Like how often do times when you just want some intimacy, but not an intimacy that leads to kind of a relationship? But it's an like we're we're more than just passers by on this journey. We're together in this. And I know I'm just like every other. Guy, especially pastor, like it ends up being like side hugs with women instead of full-on hugs because, you know, that's my wife, none of you are. So like the big old hugs gets weird, so you just got to, sometimes it's a side hug, but then how many times does it turn into it's a time of crisis and it becomes a hug that lingers for a minute when someone's in tears or someone's in conflict or you're just holding them up and they can't even hold their own weight up. Like, isn't that how we're supposed to be as a church? We carry each other's burdens. We hold each other up. So when Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss, all the churches of Christ greet you. He's saying the church global should be this obvious, messy group of people that would never hug each other, would never care for each other if it wasn't for the gospel. I mean, some, think of all the people we have in this room. People who serve their guts out in the community To protect the rest of us, some of you help people in a million other ways. Some of you are educators, some of you are in sales, some of you are in management, some of you faithfully serve your children in the home, some of you have a multitude of jobs. Like, you do all kinds of stuff. Some of you don't have a callus on your hand, and some of you can't feel, have no feeling in your fingertips anymore because you have so thick of calluses, you don't really feel stuff. Like, think of all the different walks of life that live inside this church. And how beautiful that is. And that's what Paul's getting at. He's, look at the church. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Well, then he goes on to explain there's some teams involved in this, which is what we're going to talk about right now. It's not okay for us just to have the fellowship, hugs, and we walk out going, today was a great day. I got a hug from Mike. That Today was a great day. I just feel so warm and fuzzy inside. I love coming to church because when I leave church, I feel so good about myself. That's a horrific, like we're supposed to be a training ground and a mission center to send people out into the world with the truth of God willing to lay it all down. It shouldn't be just the happy place. I mean, I'm okay with it being happy here. I enjoy that too. But that's not the point. And so in our church, we have a multitude of ministry teams in our church that all function in different ways that I don't know that you're really aware of. So the best time for people to actually listen, if they ever listen to me, is during this time of the service. So here we go. We have multiple ministry opportunities in this church for you to be plugged in, for you to get involved in, for you to help serve in, a hundred different ways. And I don't know that we've been good about promoting those there's a wall out there in the hallway with a little handout for every one of these and i think we make five copies of each one about a year ago and those should have been those should have gotten empty a lot a long time ago so we either have not done a good job of saying you know there's this big wall there with all these colors like you ought to look at those every now and then or we've just not explained it and so that's on me As the pastor of the church, that's on me. So I wanted to highlight some of our teams that we have. The one on the top, because it has the longest title. That seems to be graphically the way you would do it, right, Jake? Um, Outreach Missions Evangelism Team. Joy, who you've seen on stage a few different times, has gotten up. And when she took on the role, um, like a lot of churches, she didn't even know half of what she was getting herself into. Because we have failed in that regard, too, as a church. Too often in this church, and actually the last two churches I was a part of, both Baptist churches. This church functions more like a Baptist church than it likes to admit. But there's a nominating committee, and so what happens? You have a nominating committee. Is you sit down with the church directory, and people get in a room and go, "Who do you think would be good for this?" I don't. Know, let's look through the directory, and so you hit the Fs, and Joy gets a phone call to do outreach. That's a horrible way to do things. And so we're changing a lot of that and how our team dynamics work. We're changing how that functions. We're, we're not, we can't just rewrite the Constitution overnight, but we're working on it. That we should have people in place that are passionate about these areas. So Joy is wanting to form a team around this mission. So she's technically in charge of outreach, missions, and evangelism, which are, <laughs> that's one person can do all that. So she has been faithfully serving in how we outreach into this community. But then, if you look at the job description, she's all supposed to take care of mission trips and our evangelism efforts. That's the work of at least three to 25 people. And she's trying to do it on her own. And so she needs some of your help. So if you have a passion for missions, local, national, global, then you could be part of her team. And say, hey, I got this friend. I'd like to help here. I'd like to help with this thing. And then we just... Divide the team out. Like there's, if we don't fix some of the ways we do leadership in our church, um, we're, we're going to keep hitting this ceiling of potential in our church. And we're also not equipping you to lead. Because what happens is the paid guy and the ones that get called on a phone one night, they do all this, and so you've got about 20 people who are leading the church and everyone else just kind of flounders. We're not taking people who have leadership potential and then injecting them into the proper places. And training you, equipping you, bringing you alongside, and then watching you grow in those areas. That's what happened to me. My wife and I show up at a church in Vincennes, Indiana after leaving another church. We'd started a youth group. We show up in this church, and they started mentoring us. We're being on the youth team. The youth pastor gives me a shot at preaching. I don't know that he was wise in doing that, but he took a shot on me. He allowed me to. He took care of all the inconsistencies, the bumps and bruises I came into the ministry with, and he let me grow. And then it was several years later, after he had gone off to plant a church, I called him and said, hey, I'm quitting my teaching job, and I'm fundraising to go on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And I probably need to eat some crow. So whenever you want to serve that up, I'm willing to choke it down. Because he had told me three years prior I was going to go into ministry, and my wife and I both went, Psh, you're crazy. And he loved me and mentored me through all of it. And if we're not doing that with all of you, we're failing you, and the kingdom of God come present through our church will be diminished because we're not taking all this motley crew together to see where God's going to take us. So if you have a passion for sharing the gospel, for international or local or missions or local outreach, then please, there's your email. You should have been able to write it down by now. I've been talking a long time. Contact Joy. We're going to have a meeting in June where the teams are going to come together here in lieu of a board meeting. And so you'll have an opportunity to get together and meet and really get together. The worship team, um, a lot of you don't know Ruth. Um, Sometimes she comes up. You'll see her in second service. She usually attends first service. And the worship team over the years has really become the um, pick out the hymns and decorate the sanctuary committee. Worship is so much more than that. It's so much more than that. Um, it's not just putting some banners on a wall or putting up some wreaths or decorating and picking hymns in the first service. John Piper, um, and I know that this will fry your brain, but you'll get it eventually, someday. Um, his quote is, missions exist where worship doesn't. That the reason we have to go on mission trips, the reason we have to go share the gospel is because worship doesn't exist. And if we really worshipped the king, we wouldn't need missionaries or mission trips. Because out of the overflow of our worship on our all of the king, we would share the gospel. So worship isn't just that. And I don't know that it's ever been asked to be more than that. But it could be. It could be a lot more than that. So if you have a passion for setting the stage for people to come in the presence of God, if you have a passion for music or for preaching or for like all these things to set up the elements, to set the table for people to be more receptive to the word of God, then give Ruth a call. She'd love to have you. Uh, fellowship team, Babette, had, took this over a year ago, and I'll never forget when she became the fellowship coordinator. It was like a month in or so. She's like, I'm in charge of Thanksgiving. Which is a massive meal. We do have a lot of you been. We have a massive meal in here for Thanksgiving, and so we have all. There's been more fellowship events and more people have been part of our fellowship events in the last year and a half than have been in a while. And so it's kind of fallen on her to try to organize. So if you have a passion for hospitality and setting the table again for the for Christ to be known, maybe give her a call. This last Easter we had our pancake breakfast. And always before, people walk out with gallon Ziploc bags filled with pancakes because they have all these leftovers, and we don't ever want to run up short. This year, there were 11 left. There were more people eating pancakes at Easter this year than have been in years past. I don't know about ever, but in years past since I've been here. And so there's a lot of, that goes on in serving. If you've got a heart of service, but you don't really, like you don't know where else to go, or you, you just want to, you, like you don't, I don't want you to diminish the gift that God has given you. I don't know that you understand how important it is to set the table for people to talk about Jesus over a meal. It's infinitely important. If you like to cook and serve and invite and have the gift of hospitality, please give her a call. Brian, um, Joy's husband, so we got like a twofer in this family, has taken on. He's a, um, a contractor. Um, he's, he's awesome. I can say that for you. He wants to help try to fix things around here. Um, This building is 100% paid for, but it is old and sometimes it needs fixed. So we have the amazing blessing of no mortgage or debt on this building. And I would venture to say we never will because I don't want to build anything or do anything. We'll just start adding services if that ever happens because I've seen so many churches when they encumber a huge debt that starts affecting all kinds of other stuff. Instead of saying, hey, how many times can that seat have a butt in it three times a day? Perfect. We don't need to build anything. We'll just keep going. I started preaching in a church where I'd preach four sermons a Sunday. So until we surpass that, I've already got the capacity to pull it off. So we'll just go that far. But if you have an aptitude to fix things and to work on things across the spectrum, then give Brian a call. He could use your help. There's lots of stuff from the pothole out front that needs fixed, that all of our cars have almost lost the rack and pinion on from hitting, to the lights in here, eventually these fluorescent lights are going to be out of code. And we're going to have to fix them all. So there's lots of stuff that's going to have to be done around here to maintain this building that we use as a gift to the entire community. It's not just for us. Um, there's so many ministries that use it. It's a gift to the community. We have two boards that really the teams are already picked, the finance team and the personnel team. They're already kind of picked by the Constitution. But if you have some financial savvy and you've got some ideas, you can send Jim an email. Um if you have if you are a manager of people and you are in the business world or management world and you got some ideas about how we should do be, like evaluations, do things different, what are trends in leadership, then please give Anita a call. These two teams are kind of set by the constitution but they would also love input. We have ministry teams, the nursery, children's and youth ministry. I think too often we see the nursery as a place where we just kind of dump our infants so we can go to church, right? or we dump our child in children's ministry so we can go off to church. And I don't know that we all really grasp the importance of children's ministry and nursery. Both of my children came to faith before they were in kindergarten. So the only people sharing the truth of the gospel with them were the people in the nursery, that early ages of children's ministry, and their parents. And I promise you, it wasn't just Amber and I. And so for them to come to a faith in that early of an age and to have The kindling set for the Holy Spirit to light on fire at that early of an age. It came from people who were serving and loving my children. I'll never forget when Eli um, came to a faith in Christ. We went and shared with his first nursery, where the children's ministry. See, at the church in West Virginia, you would take like the third, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, and five-year-olds. You split them all up because we had enough volunteers to do that. And it wasn't just throw goldfish on the floor and play some music and hope they'll they don't you know eat each other. It was. A real time to share the truth of the gospel and to love them. And I'll never forget the tears in Gayanne's life, or in her eyes, the tears in her eyes when we came to her and said, Eli professed the faith in Jesus last night. And she was a part of that. And I will forever be grateful and thankful that God put her in my son's life. I mean, the first, first month we were at the church, it was open the door and kick Eli in and shut the door, and she had to deal with him because he was freaking out the first month. And he grew to love her, and and her love for him grew, and then he came to faith in Jesus. So there's a massive amount of ministry that happens between our nursery and our children's ministry. And when we just kind of, and I get it, if you hate children, like if you can't deal with them, don't go serve there. That would be horrific. So don't take something I say as guilt and go, I'm going to serve in the children's ministry, and then you're going to throw them against the wall. That's not okay. We will call the police. So, but then, like, I've been helping with the fourth and fifth, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, 456, for the last, you know, several months, and I'm, just to be honest, like, I have degrees in middle school and high school education, and I like high school students, I really like college students, I didn't really like middle school students, so to stretch me down, I have a fourth grader, and I like him half the time, right? (laughs) That's not true, I love my son, but it can be daunting, it can be like, ugh. But what if you're the one person that's going to show them grace and mercy and affection when they're not getting it at school, they're not getting it at home, there's people picking on them, there's people giving them grief, and they see it in you, even though you don't feel adequate and you don't you don't know the impact you're having. And so if God stirs you to serve in our youth ministry, like our, our youth ministry has like 20 kids in it, in high school students, and I think two of them actually attend, maybe three attend our church on a Sunday morning. It's a complete and total outreach to the community. It's a complete and total outreach to kids who might not ever come to our church on a Sunday morning, but yet we want them here. Like how how much, like our middle school ministry is really like two or three kids, but there's a whole crew of new ones coming in with the school changing. So we're going to need to inject some life into the middle school ministry and some leadership into it. And so we're going to need to ratchet that up this summer before fall hits. If God's calling you and gifted you in these areas, I kind of beg you, not for you, but for this community to serve. We have a men's and a women's ministry. Um, Rain and I kind of lead them. Just talk to us about it. You know us. This is why. So I always hate to just like give you the guilt and say, do it, and here's the why. Because I don't think anybody is called to just do things. I think you're called out of a bigger picture of the need. So I went and got some statistical data just from the internet, And so you get statistical data like this. Well, here's in 15 years, a new mayor, and I know this kind of gets daunting you're looking at it because I don't know if this really matters a whole lot. But look at this one. For the population 25 years and over in Laramie, half this town has a bachelor's degree or higher. We are a highly educated group of people in this town. A quarter of this town has a graduate degree or a professional degree. We're a highly educated group of people. And we don't really go that far. We're like highly educated townies. We stick around. Like, this is our community. Highly educated people in this community. And then you look at this stat, that 64% of this community has zero religious affiliation. That in this town, there are only... 6.7% 6.7% evangelical Protestants. So you have the main lines, the others, which would be every other faith in town, and then the Catholic faith. And I, I'm not picking on mainline or Catholic, because I think technically we're considered mainline, but we're really an evangelical church, that you have a, there are evangelical Catholic churches too, but when you look at the, the, the green pie of evangelical Protestant, this is the number of churches or people in this town that actually believe you need to share the gospel for someone to be saved. The other churches would say, in, a, in a whole, a, just a different vein, in a different, whole different kinds of ways, well, if you come to church and you partake in the sacraments, then you're good. Or if you come into the building, you're good. Or we're universalist. Everybody's good, Right? But an evangelical church says God made this planet perfect. Adam and Eve messed it up in their sin. And that broke everything. And God knew that we couldn't fix it on our own, so he in his divine forbearance knew Jesus was coming to save us. And for us to have eternal life in heaven, we need a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. None get to the Father except through the Son. And if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father so you need Jesus. Without him, you have no hope for eternity. That'd be a core evangelical belief. And only 6.7% of this town believe that. When you look at Chuck Coleman, who did lots of ministry in prisons, um, he often said that if he could get 10 to 15% of the prison to become evangelical Christians, it would change the landscape of the entire prison. Violence dropped. Instances of recidivism where people leave and come back dropped. If you could convince and get the people, 10 to 15 percent, to be evangelical, gospel-believing Christians, you would change the entire culture in that prison. And the same thing is true in campus ministry. If you are part of a campus ministry on, like, UW's campus, other campuses, like when I was with InterVarsity, the magic number is 10 percent. If you had 10% of the college students involved in a campus ministry, then you were considered a rock star success in all other ministries. Because the same thing happens. We saw it on in Rose, at Rose Holman Institute of Technology where I served. We saw it happen in sorority and fraternities where one fraternity house had about five or six men that were Christians and it changed their whole house. Like all everything changed in that frat house to the point where guys that were looking for The hardcore partying kind of frat life, they would pledge that one and go, Whoa, I'm out. You guys, you guys like actually have morals. I need to go find another one. Think about what we could do on that campus over there. If we had 10 to 15% penetration of evangelical believers, of faculty and staff at that campus, how that would change. Think about if we had a 10%. Evangelical understanding of the gospel and the students on that campus. Think about this town, the city of Laramie. If we could move this number from 6.7 to 10 to 15%, if we could get about five percent to ten percent of these people who believe in nothing to have a faith in, in in Christ, how that would change this town. It would change your kids' schools. It would change the campus. It, would change our, it could change the state. What if that just we had a goal that said, hey, you know what, we're going to share the gospel, we're going to commit, we're going to go. What, ha- what would happen if 10 to 15% of our legislators were gospel-believing Christians? What if 10 to 15% of the teachers in the schools in this community or on that campus were that way? How could exponentially that happen on that campus where you had a 15% penetration of the gospel and the faculty and staff, how that would trickle to the students? That's so why did I bring all this up. Because we're this church in Romans 16. Because we know the end of the story, don't we? The church flourished in Rome. Persecution happened. We know that all, um, the emperor Constantine comes to faith in Christ through this small band of persecuted misfits in Rome. The emperor Constantine comes to Christ and Christ is proclaimed on all of the Roman roads around the Mediterranean and the church of Christ grew 300 years of persecution and because they never gave up they never stopped proclaiming Christ they penetrated into the bureaucracy and then they ended up being spread so we can't be a holy huddle of a church that just withdraws i can't stand the collection the 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 political cycle, I can't stand the election cycle, I don't know what's going to happen, I don't know who to vote for, I don't trust any of them, oh, what am I going to do, I'm just going to... And instead, as Christians, we engage in every aspect. Sure, the city council's a mess. Sure, the county commissioners are a mess. Sure, the state legislators, sure, the national... It's all a mess because they don't have Jesus. So what if we as a church saw this entire place as a mission field? There where you work, where you live, where you play, is a place for Jesus to be proclaimed. Not just to get notches on our belt or to fill up people in this church. If you could direct people to any of the other evangelical churches, then send them there. If this isn't for them, send them to one. Get them plugged in. Because the goal isn't for First Christian Church to become a megachurch. The goal is for Laramie to become a place that proclaims Christ. And that doesn't happen without a church that's going to proclaim it. So we need you. We need you. Why? If you continue reading, there are people that want to throw false truths in us all the time. Paul continues in 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine That you've been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. But around every turn, someone's trying to sway you from the truth of the scriptures. And you see it everywhere. So in Proverbs 14, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Just because it feels good, sounds good, I like that, doesn't mean it's of God or if it's biblical. And so we have to constantly submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture, to authority of the church, to seek wise counsel, we, aren't, we shouldn't just be floating along on our own. You and I both know that if we read the Bible on our own our whole lives, we can come up with some pretty crazy ideas, can't we? I mean, I can't be the only punk in the room that twisted Scripture to get his way with a girl. I can't be the only punk that said, Well, you know, the Bible says this. Um, I know it says that. But I read something somewhere that said that was mistranslated. I can't be the only one that's played those games in my life. And at every time I've done that, God's convicted me and shown me the truth, and it's proven that I'm a punk. Because I'm twisting the very word of God. Now, are there things in here that I don't understand? Of course. Are there things in here that I still don't grasp? Of course. But I don't throw them out the window or come up with my own idea. I study harder. I dig in more. I ask people who are trusted to give me more insight. I look at the church fathers. I look at how the history of the church has existed for 2,000 years. And then what C.S. What's CS Lewis call it? Um, chronological snobbery. Where we think because we live in 2016, we're smarter than people were 100 years ago. So clearly, God didn't mean that because I'm smarter than that guy. Well, you didn't have all the data and all the facts. We're smarter now. We have smartphones even. That's how smart we are. And instead, submitting to the Scriptures, and Paul's warning them, there's going to be people with flattery, smooth talk, and deceive the hearts of the naive. We have to be the strength for our brothers and sisters who are new in faith and who are naive in faith. Because they'll be swayed easily by some fancy talk. I've seen it. I've seen it in Africa. I've seen it in rural Indiana, Or just because someone has a book deal or has a show on TV, everyone thinks, well, they must be okay, because he's on TV. I mean, he bought the, the Houston Dome or whatever it was called, the Toyota. He bought that. He's got a big old church. He's got to be right. No, he's not. He's not. Just because he's got a TV show and book deals doesn't mean he's an agent of Christ. doesn't mean he's a proclaimer of the gospel. We have to discern and we have to help our brothers and sisters do that. Paul then continues, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So again, Tertius was the secretary, the dictation agent. He was the scribe. He wrote this down. Paul dictates it; he writes it. Gaius, who is host to me, and to the whole church greets you. Aristus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. So even then, the city treasurer, people in public office, are believers serving in the church. So I don't think it's. I think it's you need to be very cautious when you enter into public service as a Christian but there, I don't see any admonition here that says you shouldn't be in public service. He then ends with a doxology. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Don't you love Paul's run-ons? They're awesome and so confusing. <laughs> now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, it was kept secret. You see Paul mentioned this in Ephesians and Colossians. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's not asking any of us to do this on our own. He's saying, I love you, I've saved you, I've imparted my spirit upon you. That's the power source that lets you deal with three-year-olds. That's the power source that lets you deal with women in women's ministry. That's the power source that lets you love teenagers, even when they frustrate you like crazy. That's the power source that lets you feel the confidence to engage in leadership in this church and not feel like your ideas will be smashed. And when you are disagreed with, you don't pick up your toys and run, you have the confidence and the power of the Holy Spirit that you will stick around. Not because you need a pat on the back or someone to be happy with you, but because there's a mission in front of our faces that there are people dying in this community without hope. There are people all over that campus and all over this city and this town and this state that are living a hopeless existence, and you have the keys to the kingdom in your hands, you have the power of the Holy Spirit inside you, why would you keep that to yourself? Research proves that worship and awe leads to commitment and understanding. That if we are in awe of a great God, then we Will move and function under that power. It's how the the second part of the Great Commandment happens. You love God and put no other gods before Him, and then you love your neighbor. You can't love your neighbor if you don't put God first because your neighbor will frustrate you. God is first. And so we have to approach this impossible mission with the truth that we already know the end of the story. The game's kind of loaded, the outcome is certain. It's the book of Revelation. Jesus comes back, riding on a horse, claiming his bride. It's over. It's over. We know the end of the story. So like, if you watch movies like I do, like the Mission Impossible movies, like I I kind of thought of this before I was thinking of where I was going. I'm like, you're a dork. Everybody's going to think of the movie. So before Tom Cruise became famous off of the TV show... Tom Cruise makes these movies Mission Impossible. So if you're like me when you watch movies and you're 30 minutes into the movie and the main character's in this precarious position, he's going to die, you all know he's not dying. She's not dying. They're not going to have a two-hour movie slot. You pay for a ticket and they kill the lead off in 30 minutes and say, okay, movie's over, leave. No one's doing that. So if you do that, when you watch any show and you catch yourself, oh, man, it's cut to a commercial. What's going to happen? Is Jack Bauer going to die this time? Oh, wait, it's 7.30. There's a half an hour left. He'll be fine. Right? We all know that. Because they're not just going to off the main character in the middle of it. We know the end of this story. It's the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. He's already won. We get eternity with him. This, it's been set. It's certain. There's no going back. It's for sure. It's right here in the word of God. So why would you have the fear and the crippling fear of, I don't know if God can use me. I don't know if I'm worthy. I don't know if I have the skills. I don't know if I can deal with them. Well, yeah, the mission's impossible, but he tells us, I give you my spirit. That's how the mission's going to come to fruition. And the end of the story is certain. We already know the end. So no matter what happens in the world, no matter what presses against us as a nation, no matter what leader we get, I guarantee you 100 years ago, When President McKinley was shot, everyone thought in America the world is over. The terrorists have won. I guarantee you, over and over again in the history of this world, when someone's risen to power and fallen, everyone thinks it's all over. And we seem to still keep trucking along. And so it's not about the mission of nation building, it's about the mission of the gospel. We know the end of the story. So you just have to figure out how's your part of the story going to unfold in the story of God. If you went back 20 years, well, 17 years, 18 years, when Amber and I got married, it was pretty clear I was going to teach high school in Indianapolis. That blew up in a year, and we were back in Vincennes. If you had told me that I was going to teach at the high school I graduated from, I'd have laughed in your face. Number one, nobody gets teaching jobs in Vincennes, Indiana. and Number two, who would want to go there? Like, I don't want to go back there. That's where we landed for six years. If you asked my wife and I, especially Amber, if her husband was going to be a pastor, she would audibly laugh in your face. She did, actually. If you had told us we were going to be living in Wyoming after being in West Virginia for a while, we would have said, like, people who aren't from here, where's Wyoming? I was a geography teacher. I knew where Wyoming was the whole time. But, right? Some of you are sitting in this place, and if we looked back 10 years ago, you never would have thought you would have been here. So you have to figure out the part of the story that God's unfolding that you're going to engage in. How does the story of your life intersect with the story of his name being made famous to the ends of the earth, to the culminating end, a new heaven and a new earth exist on this planet? The redemption of everything that's been broken. And so, I Nick, not because of guilt, but do you really want your legacy for eternity to be, yeah, I was a faithful church attender. Or do you want it to be the stories of the people that you've shared your faith with, shared your life with, people have come to know Jesus through you and in you. Don't you want that to be your legacy? So I would ask, over the next several weeks, pray about all those lists of people that we put up, And over the summer, we're going to roll out more and more of how we're changing the leadership pipeline of our church and how we're trying to do things different and how we're trying to help build you into positions of leadership instead of just, not just, but helping you be more equipped to share the gospel. How cool would it be if in the next five years we start sending people out of here, sending the best out of this place, like Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas out? How cool would it be if in the next five years we have three, four, five Couples leaving this place to go serve in other churches and to be impacting the gospel in other areas. How cool would that be? That we wouldn't see ourselves as a place just trying to holy huddle to get us all together so we can have fun on Sunday. Instead, we see this as a training ground to go into the nations. And I believe that's what the church is intended to be. But first, you have to know him. Do you have a faith in Jesus Christ? Have you put your trust in him? Do you trust him with every part of your life? And if so, then do you see this as the place where you can make a church home? That you want to partner with us in this building, in this place, in this community to spread that? Do you know him? Because if you know him, then you should be sharing him. And we could all get better at that if we're honest. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we've had in your word and worship, worshiping through your word. And I pray that we would see ourselves as a beautiful mess of people. That many of us might not get along with each other every day. We might not even come in contact with each other outside of this building and this congregation. But together we are a force of truth and the gospel. So I pray, Lord, you encourage us all Help us to see ourselves in this long list of people that vouch for Paul. Help us to know that we have a family that would vouch for us, and we have you in heaven constantly going before the Father on our behalf. I pray, Lord, that we'd be motivated to see the need for the truth to be preached and proclaimed in this community from each and every one of us, that we would see our workplace, our neighborhood, and this town as a mission field that needs the hope of of your son, Jesus. We love you. Amen.